What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mason Kern, joined by our site publisher, Chris Cartman. And Chris, obviously a lot to get to in today's edition. But first off, just how's it going? What's new? How you doing? I'm doing fine, Mason. I, it's like I told Mark McClune, uh, local uh, 3TV reporter, CBS 5, that uh, we've kind of been hibernating during the summer as opposed to the winter this year just waiting for everything to uh to to break for us and and now it's time to to go eat it looks like i think we're gonna have to try to come out and cover somewhat of a season here probably in uh the next six seven weeks or so starting up and and um looking forward to it yeah, and our, and as you say, our plates are going to be full, but so are our bellies, as we're definitely we're definitely going to be eating uh, once football returns. And it's looking more and more likely, uh, based on your reporting this morning, as we're recording this on Saturday, September nineteenth. Uh, Greg Biggins also uh, you kind of supplemented so his reporting about the potential return of fall football in the Pac-12, the Big Ten announcing its return as well. And before I get in really on on all the details, I just want to let you kind of break down the latest on what you're kind of hearing about the situation. Right, so uh, Biggins, really solid reporting, um, essentially saying on Friday that uh, they were likely to have a November 7 Pac-12 restart with seven games through December 19th, which uh, would allow for the Pac-12 to be included in the normal college football playoff process and also the the regular bowl selection process. Not sure how that would work with the, obviously the six games you normally need to win to to be bowl eligible in this season. Uh, They're going to have to sort of resolve that. But uh, that was after the Pac-12 CEO meeting like very shortly thereafter which happened at 11 o'clock on friday uh i had heard rumblings that sort of matched what biggins was saying yesterday but then on saturday today as we're recording this i got a lot more clarity on it and essentially there was a straw vote not not an official uh, uh vote but a straw poll that um indicated nine to three actually that's not nine of the teams were willing to try to ramp up for an October 31st start um, which sort of was the, the the goal that I think that the, the conference had and some of the teams had trying to get maybe an eight game schedule in before the CFP selection um, there were three teams that were not in favor of that as I think a lot of the audience knows California and Oregon have had the most aggressive restrictions related to their workouts. And, um, and it's not a surprise that Stanford and Cal, I'm told, were two of the teams, two of the three teams that uh, expressed a lot of uh, reservations about being able to have their team ready. There's some conflicting information I have on the third team. It's been kind of publicly out there that UCLA was, but uh, also against uh, it. But I've heard otherwise, so I'm not exactly sure on the third team and got to look into that a little bit more. But um, essentially uh, what's happened is Stanford and Cal, they don't have their, a lot of their players on campus. They've been learning, distance learning, and, um, and they're not, you know, been training at all really in, in any organized way for the last six months. And so there's concern about just 
their ability to first assemble everybody, then quarantine, then test. Uh, and this is all once they get the protocols uh, um, approved with the county officials. And that's the second part of this thing and, and why a lot of Pac-12 coaches are uh, frustrated and you see some, some bubbling up of frustration in reports by John Wilner, uh, Canzano at the, uh, in Oregon, uh, and something that we can also say is, is the case is that you have uh, some just frustration that nine teams feel like they can go on October 31st, but uh, three teams are not. And I think because the, the conference wants to be appear to be unified in, in a forward-facing kind of a way, coupled with um, just not, not doing enough after the daily testing was announced, uh, which was two weeks ago now. Uh, more than I think it was a few days, more than two week, two weeks, um, that they basically announced their daily testing would be in place by the end of September. So, what I think a lot of people feel should have happened is, uh, within a week of that, they should have been communicating with the governor's office in California and Oregon about the the cohorting rules, and then. Uh, seeking the exemption from those cohorting rules and any other things that would be limiting to their preparations uh, in writing so that that could have already been approved and they could have already assembled all of their players uh, certainly by like maybe the beginning of this week uh, so five six days ago which then would have allowed for the quarantining process the testing and then once the daily testing was up and running by next week or maybe the week after they would be full go, but they would already be able to do some uh, uh, conditioning type work to get ready in the, in, in the first week as a way of getting them more closely to a potential October 31st start. I think that uh, there's a lot of, um, from what I've heard, there's a lot of frustration that they seem to be sort of idly hanging out, thinking that that California, Oregon issues were going to somehow resolve themselves. Uh, and, um, and that just wasn't going to be the case. Right. And I think it's uh, important just in terms of that frustration in terms of getting the conference to a place where they're making decisions. And there's been a lot of talk of the PAC 12 kind of following in the big 10 shadow and, Obviously, the, the conference wants to appear unified, but uh, based on your reporting and, and others, uh, frustrations, forcing issues. And, and Chris, I want to get into kind of the, the perspective you have of the November 7th potential start date. Is that a good move in your opinion? Is that a date that, that it makes sense? And is, is, or, or should they have gone the, the end of October? Yeah, so it's... It's really hard to say that. I don't. It, I, I. There are some coaches who feel like you can get a team ready in a month, and others who think like, no, you definitely can't. Especially after they've had, in some of these schools, essentially six months of no organized activities. And, um, I think the more broadly, the question that I have is. Uh, is any 7-0 and team from the Pac-12 going to make it into the football bowl playoff structure? I'm not really sure about that. I think what's happened is that the, the, the Big Ten's decision made it so the Pac-12 didn't want to feel like it was the only one left out because then they couldn't have 
they, they couldn't have done some sort of a bowl collaboration with the Big Ten for all of their winning uh, teams, let's say f- five and three teams uh, over an eight-game schedule. And then maybe the other teams could have even played another game in some format. So, um, and then there's the whole thing, like, do you want to sort of be the last team playing and playing for nothing as it relates to bowls and uh, the college football playoff and the the rankings and all those kinds of things? And what would be the perception sort of associated with that? Um, you know, they, they could have gone, you know, to the 10 game schedule that they, the, the all conference 10 game schedule, that was their first revision attempt before they had to scrap it or decided to scrap it. I should say, um, I don't really know what the right answer is. I think you're, I think you're basically choosing from a bunch of bad answers. Um, and you know, but I, I would say that, uh, it's going to be tough also to get seven straight games in you have, uh, you know, at least one major football game is canceled this weekend due to uh, a position group wiped out by, you know, the testing. And, uh, and you could have, you know, strict rules in place such that, like, the, the Big Ten has, a, I think, a 5% rule. If, if more than that test positive, they, they can't play as a team. And any individuals who test positive have to be out for, I think, three weeks. So there's some challenges that are associated with this. I do think that the daily testing in place is going to help because it makes it so that you're, you're, every single day you're going to be kind of knowing where you stand with players. So only if a bunch of them happen to all be together at a big sort of event where they all come down with the virus or are exposed to the virus would it be an issue. But um, there are some logistical hurdles that remain. I don't really have an answer as to what is the right thing to do, whether they should have tried to play 10 games and not worry about the, the postseason or the other conferences or whether they should have rushed it and tried to play on October 30th, 31st with some of the teams feeling like they definitely weren't ready and with the conference not being all, all on the same page. The only thing I feel really strongly about is the Pac-12 has been extremely slow and uh, overly cautious with its, its process of getting its athletes back on campus and their protocols approved so that they would have the opportunity to try to uh, compete at the earliest uh, date possible. Right. And you mentioned the seven and O if a PAC 12 team wins all their seven games, the likelihood of them even making the college football playoff and the PAC 12 overall has had a hard time making the college football playoff. Only two teams in the last six seasons, I think the stat is. So, I mean, already a difficult time, but you, Talk about the, the, the daily testing and some of these developments that have made this possible. How important then was the statements by both the California governor and the Oregon governor in getting uh, the Pac-12 feeling comfortable enough to, to play football in the fall? Well, this is this was really head-scratching. I, I was like, I could just see everybody being apoplectic about kind of how that unfolded because you had Larry Scott uh, – last week or whenever it was uh, is publicly saying in, in, in media appearances that, that the state uh, regs were restrictive of their ability to work out. And then on the same day you had Gavin Newsom come out and say, no, right. the, the state isn't the, the problem. 
because you have the, the uh, you know, maybe more challenging because of the cohorting, but we're not stopping you from playing games. Well, that, you know, both of them deserve kind of, you know, my ire at least because Larry Scott certainly messed up because why are you waiting to find out from Gavin Newsom what the circumstances are? Why are you waiting to find out from county health officials what their rules would enable? They had to be aggressively pursuing uh, uh, learning that as soon as they had the daily testing in place, how they could get the exemptions and move on from there. But then also Gavin Newsom is wrong and logically so because the cohorting rules of 12 people by in and of itself prevents teams from being able to prepare for football games. You, you, can't, uh, you can't prepare for an opponent without a scout team going against you. And that requires more than 12 players, right? You, you have to have probably at least uh, you know, 16, 18 players out there to be able to do that together. Plus, never mind, how is the rest of your team going to practice together? How, how are you going to have – how is that going to work within the framework of the hour restrictions for kids? And then how is that going to work in the weight room within the hour restrictions? So – uh, it wasn't feasible. It's not on Gavin Newsom though to understand like exactly how college football program works and needs what it needs to function properly and play games. But but at the same time, there's a lot more complex issues that he has to deal with all the time. That um, so either it was disingenuous or it was really kind of ignorant on, on his part. But you still, at the end of the day, you know, I made the mistake of assuming that it was more on on them. Because I, what I had, uh, you know, this was my error was somewhat of an assumption that the Pac-12 would already be having ongoing dialogue with the state and county officials about getting their uh, their programs cleared for full practice ramp up once they had the daily testing in place. But you know, inexplicably, there was like a two-week period. It seems like where that wasn't happening, and that's just one more example of you know what I think is a clear sign of inadequate leadership in the Pac-12. And I want to take you back, uh, Chris, to your, to your point about the vote, uh, nine to three in terms of teams in the Pac-12 ready to play by that October 31st date. Is there a scenario, uh, in your opinion, or, or that you've heard that teams that were ready and voted, uh, to be able to play uh, by October 31st? Is there a way that they could possibly schedule non-conference games against out-of-conference opponents, possibly against in-conference opponents that don't count toward the standings? Right. So people have asked that question on, in the Devil's Sanctuary on our message board for members, and uh, I, I, I don't think so because everybody that is playing football already has all of their dates set. And because you're working on this shorter timeline, I don't even think that there are going to be enough teams where there could be non-conference games scheduled across the conference at this, at this point in time. I think it's just too late for that to likely be happening. And then some people said, well, why not play a non-conference, almost like an exhibition game in conference as sort of a, you know, scrimmage uh, against another Pac-12 team, and I think that's possible but that they that they that they do that, but not count it. But uh, you know, there again, you run into some some questions that you have with teams 
some coaches feel like their teams are not going to be physically ready and you're not going to want them to play at, you know, less than full speed on the field because they're tentative or whatever, because that's, that's also how you, you, you tend to get injuries. So I think it's unlikely, but again, I haven't heard anything that would rule it out. It's definitely interesting, uh, an interesting scenario and, and potential for that for sure. But listeners can can get in on the conversation going on in our VIP forum, The Devil's Sanctuary, that's on our site at sundevilsource.com. Uh, you can read Chris's full report uh, there as well. But, but Chris, I want to transition a little bit now uh, just to ASU football recruiting and their efforts uh, both in the 2021 class and, and possibly beyond, obviously, in our last podcast we talked about the the opening of the contact period for 2022s but doesn't necessarily mean that the 2021 class is is over and done despite them having 21 commitments at this point so appearances really aren't what they seem in ASU's case it seems like yeah so this year is completely anomalous to any recruiting year that I have been doing this, which is really two decades now, um, you have the, the coronavirus situation and players being concerned about not improving their stock as seniors due to not playing or having delayed seasons into the fall created a situation, as we've, I think, talked about previously on the podcast, where uh, there started to be a lot more commitments because uh, the top level teams in the country they they had more more uh, control over what was going to happen and uh, and then so that just was a domino effect that cascaded down to ASU and, and many other schools to where the the supply and demand balance was better for the coaches and the schools. Than they than it ha, that it has typically been, uh, and and so you we've already had sort of in recent years this sort of slower process of more early commitments happening ever since they uh, they they start went with the their early signing period in December a few years ago, and it's just continued now and now and this year was just a very anomalous type of a year. ASU's never had anything close to twenty commitments. Um, you know, by like Labor Day, and and that's where they were this year. And typically, that doesn't even happen until December, I, I would say. So maybe November at the earliest. So, um, but what that also means is, with all of these kids having not taken any visits to the campus and not having in-home visits in person with any of the coaches, there's a lot more opportunity for volatility in recruiting. A lot of people having buyer's remorse about the, the college that they picked. A lot of schools feeling like kids are maybe not holding up their end of the bargain after committing four, five, six months later, while also having an opportunity to still be involved with other kids that are higher profile, that they maybe have higher on their, on their boards. And so uh, even though they have extended the dead period through January 1st, which means there will be no visits on campus by any recruits and there will be no in-home visits or or uh, school visits by coaches to players at their high schools it's um still i think very likely that there is a lot more uh, uh flipping of commitments you know dropping of commitments and other things that happen moving forward 
in, in ASU, this manifests uh, really with the offensive line position group in particular. We've seen ASU has five or six committed offensive linemen, depending on how you count Isaiah World, who could play on either side of the ball. And typically that's a full class, right? Five, six offensive linemen all out of high school. And yet ASU offered scholarships uh, just in the last couple of weeks to another four or five high school offensive linemen. And so that sort of doesn't add up, I think, to like the casual, uh, to maybe even the, the, the somewhat uh, invested uh, a follower of recruiting. And uh, we've talked about this on the Devil Sanctuary, exactly what that means. And so I'm not going to go like too, too into the weeds on it because I, I kind of want to incentivize people uh, uh, joining the site and seeing the depth of our analysis and coverage and how it's just not really matched out there elsewhere. But what I, what I can say, Mason, is that uh, as ASU, Herm Edwards and his assistant coaches have been watching football at the NFL and college level in recent weeks, you know, starting up and they're not playing, it's been a, a reaffirmation of the importance of offensive line to the overall uh, uh, capability of a, any college football team. And you have five guys that need to be out there. So it's the position where you play the most players. You need the most depth. It's the most developmental talent, meaning that it usually takes guys two, three, four years to get ready. And ASU coaches have been recruiting very successfully at, at other positions. You look at the uh, Dominic Lovett, who committed recently, was their sixth four-star wide receiver commit in a row. Uh, they signed four in the previous class. They signed two four-star running backs in the previous class. Their secondary recruiting and their overall talent on hand is, is probably the best that I have seen in uh, all my time covering the program. You know, Antonio Pierce is always going to have linebackers who are very capable. Defensive line is, I think, probably the second biggest question right now to their offensive line. And so we saw this year that they went to more of a national recruiting strategy. They have commitments from 12 different states, uh, um, players uh, of their 21 players. And uh, that was because they felt like they needed to do that to get the bigger, longer bodies uh, without being confined to doing that in the West where there, there weren't as many numbers. So uh, they, they've started to recruit more nationally and they are very clearly still considering all of their options, particularly at the offensive line position. And there may be more changes and more developments uh, in store. They continue to recruit uh, really a lot of players for a team that already has 21 commitments on the board. Right. And offensive line, obviously crucial. It seems like the last few regimes, even before Herm Edwards have, have kind of struggled to consistently bring in top offensive line talent to ASU. But listeners can go to the site as well. In addition to the Devil Sanctuary, we have a, a great breakdown of ASU's top remaining 2021 offensive line targets that you can go check out as well. And one of ASU's offensive line commits, Ezra Dotson Oyatada, he just received his All-American Bowl jersey just obviously in a different format this year, being, being virtual. But he did receive his all-American Bull jersey, so that was a significant development for ASU's offensive line commit. But, Chris, you mentioned the 
early signing period and, and with the dead period being extended to the end of January, in your opinion, does this create a scenario where the early signing period might not actually happen on time, considering kids who do sign during that allotted time period wouldn't have been able to visit their school of choice before signing the, the NLI? Well, I, I, it's interesting that you asked that. I haven't heard anything um, that indicates that there won't be the December signing period. I sort of floated the idea a while back that I would like to see, instead of having a February period this year, maybe having an April period. Uh, you, the football is the only sport that does the, the February signing. Most, uh, all the other, not, I don't know if it's all, but most of the other college programs do a November signing period and an April signing period, which I kind of like. I think I, I like the spacing of it, but, uh, they don't do that in football because um, there's just been a lot of pushback by the top schools about against it. But uh, I personally like the idea of if kids don't feel comfortable making decisions when they can't visit schools, which even though there's a lot of good technology now and you can virtually see and meet with everybody reasonably well, I, I still respect people who don't feel like that they can get the same experience. And I just don't see any way there's going to be visits before February signing period. So I think it's kind of, it's got to be frustrating for some of these kids to not be able to get that, that sort of confidence in their decision. I think if you had made it April uh, for the late signing period that potentially March, February, March, April, maybe you could have had some sort of visits uh, by that point in time. Don't don't know for sure, but um, I don't think there's going to be any movement of this December signing period. And I would anticipate that ASU ends up uh, filling the majority, the vast majority of its class by then. I think typically they're going to leave probably a, a couple scholarships available just so that they have wiggle room for transfer candidates and others who may end up kind of coming onto the scene later on. But uh, I, I do anticipate that the vast majority of recruiting, not just at ASU, but really in, in the Pac-12 and all Power 5 conferences, will be done by, uh, by the, that uh, middle of December. Well, I'll be curious to see uh, which, how many kids actually do sign. And then briefly, I want to get your thoughts uh, before I transition over to, to basketball and the impact uh, on that schedule and everything. How early enrollees might work, and if, if you expect there to be more despite having no visits, if, if there might not be any changes and, and the status of, of early enrollees just overall in this new climate we're in? Yeah, I think that's a good question. It, it typically de- it depends on the, the academics mostly because kids have played in the fall and so they're not playing football anymore in the spring. There may be some kids, two or three, not like a lot, who, just, who have the ability to early enroll at ASU academically but decide that because of that added benefit of uh, or that goal, I guess, maybe of just wanting to play with their high school team one more time, that you might have some guys that decide to do that. Like uh, Dominic Lovett is sort of like on the fence about that. I mentioned him earlier. Probably a couple other guys. Then and you Junior have, Alexander said he's going to play his senior season. Right, right. And I don't know about, you know, I don't know for sure about their academic situations and whether they would for sure be able to uh, uh, transfer early. But 
you know, there, there's definitely going to be some considerations about that that have to be made. I think that there are players, though, who have already said, Mason, as you know, that they are bypassing their senior season to enroll early and get ready because college is the more important thing to them anyways. And getting that jump start with that first initial spring football, they feel like is sort of more valuable to their long-term development than playing that spring football season. So, yeah, it's, 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 everyone has sort of their view. I think high school, your, your, your senior year of high school, I think for a lot of people is a very special sort of a thing, especially if you play football, play sports and what you've been working for and building to with all your friends for a long period of time can't really you know judge whatever people are going to do on that side of things especially during uh this whole coronavirus situation and and we also don't know exactly what's going to happen and what's going to be allowed for these teams uh going into february march and spring football you would think that it's gonna maybe get easier and the daily testing and playing in the, in the fall will make that sort of process more streamlined, but you just never exactly know what happens when you get to a flu season that peaks maybe December, January, February. So, um, so yeah, there's just a lot of uncertainty. Right. Tough decisions definitely having to be made across the board kind of feel for those kids who, who aren't really able to take their, their visits and their recruiting process a little, little jumbled up right now. But I want to transition, Chris, as I mentioned, get into some basketball talk. Uh, I, I want to get your kind of status on where the Pac-12 is with other sports because obviously in August they didn't just cancel fall football. They canceled all athletic competition until January 1st. So with them possibly bringing football back in the fall, where does basketball stand as well as the, the other sports and, and their start dates? So I think all the other sports except for football and basketball are almost certainly not going to be participating until next year. Um, basketball, they have a uh, – the NCAA is targeting the week of, of Thanksgiving for a return to competition. And you have <clears> – pardon me – you have it, these um, conversations that I've heard from sources have been ongoing with Pac-12 coaches on a semi-regular basis, actually, for the last few weeks, because these uh, coaches don't want to be left behind on that process. They don't want the Pac-12 to wait and, and start in, in January when everyone else is playing basketball in the last week or so of November. So... I think that that is known at the Pac-12, and I and also the the uh, the testing and sort of the the footprint of a basketball team is dramatically smaller. I mean, the football team is dramatically bigger than basketball, so that means that it should be much easier in basketball to have a lot of confidence in their protocols, their testing. And so that's something that uh, makes it a little bit more plausible that they, that the PAC 12 could join with these other basketball conferences, especially if they have football up and off the ground playing games by at least early November. Uh, So uh, it's, better odds than we've seen at any point in time since that announcement that you mentioned there that there is Pac-12 basketball 
in some non-conference formats by the the end of November, the very beginning of December. And what that would look like in my sort of guesstimation would be um, a, a bunch of teams getting together in one location and playing sort of round robin style or maybe tournament style in these pop-up type locations that are more regionally based. So we could see teams gathering in Phoenix, uh, Las Vegas, San Diego, Los Angeles, for example, very easy travel and accommodation standpoint. You could have them in sort of all encompassing things, Vegas in particular, like at the Orleans, uh, just off the top of my head is the location where they have had some conference tournaments and you could basically have the, the, the whole, the, the entire hotel be like basketball related for a one to two week period and you get in four to six games and then maybe you do that in two cities or something along those lines. You could do the same thing maybe in San Diego or in Phoenix. So, um, I think that's a very strong possibility just to get uh, teams sort of up to speed and everybody kind of understanding what their talent is like and that they're conditioned properly before they get into conference play. Um, You know, and I'm not sure if the conference schedule will remain as it typically would be, or if they would try to minimize travel and also do things in some neutral sites some centrally located places, uh, you know, or not. I, I think that it's very possible with the distance learning and everybody doing so much of the Zoom stuff, not needing to be in person as much, if at all, in, in some cases, that those things are, uh, they're able to at least be on the table for conversation. And with ASU specifically, I know they're scheduled to participate in the Diamond Head Classic Tournament. Uh, that was obviously off in Hawaii and, and, and Maui, I believe. But now reports rumoring them to be moving to Orlando instead, kind of a, in a bubble-type format. Is that what you're hearing, and, and what's the status of, of that? Yeah, so that was, uh, I believe, John Rothstein, uh, CBS Sports, he tweeted that. I was able to confirm that later. There, so the, everybody knows the NBA bubble in Orlando uh, will be ending here in the next several weeks but they already have the logistics extremely well set up to continue to have additional events there. And it wouldn't be probably as pure of a, of a bubble where they've had no testing cases positive the whole time they've had the NBA bubble, but what they're, what they're going to do, my understanding is they're going to have six or seven of the typical holiday tournaments in December. Um, take place that are all around uh, the country from the Bahamas, you know, the Atlantis one, the, the I think there's two in Hawaii. And I think there's uh, one or two in Florida. What they're going to basically do is they're going to have all of them, I think, be in Orlando in this bubble type atmosphere where everybody comes in. They, you have your housing, your doctors, trainings, referees, everybody stays. They go through a testing and maybe even a quarantining period and then you're all playing and, uh, and you know, in a relatively COVID, you know, maybe entirely COVID-free uh, type of environment. So, um, you know, I, that's why I, I think that they may try to take that example of what happened in Orlando with the NBA bubble and see if they can reproduce that on smaller scales 
in some of these other types of uh, venues more regionally across the country as a way of, you know, ha promoting a, a safe sort of situation. And then we may again, Mason, it's possible that we may even see in March uh, the NCAA tournament take on a similar type of a structure because there's probably not going to be fans by then. Maybe they, uh, once you get to the Sweet 16, maybe you do that all in one location in a bubble type environment. Uh, it may be harder to do an earlier round, 64, 32, I don't know. But may maybe they do that in sort of regional bubbles um, as well. I think those are the types of conversations that are probably ongoing. And before I let you go, uh, Chris, obviously fans of ASU wanting to see this year's basketball team with the additions of Josh Christopher, Marcus Bagley, these guys, the, the Twitter account, the official team's Twitter account uh, posted pictures of, of Josh and, and his younger brother or older brother, excuse me, Caleb working out, obviously wanted to uh, get your confirmation or what you've heard on. Did everyone make it to campus? I know obviously they have a, a kid from Europe in the recruiting class and the status of where he's at and what you're hearing on that front. Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, I had heard going back about two weeks ago that uh, everybody was on campus with the exception of uh, their one European uh, 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 kid. And I don't know if he's arrived yet or not. That's something that I'm going to have to look into a little bit more closely. Uh, Pablo de Zubia, uh, um, you know, the, some of the travel restrictions around European players was, has been limiting, not just for ASU, but other schools as well. Uh, I have been told that there are other transfers, even the ones that are sitting out or may sit out, are on campus. Holland Woods, uh, he got the waiver. Still think he's probably going to end up redshirting, but there's no final confirmation on that. As you mentioned there, Josh Christopher, he was a little bit of a later arrival, but he's been on the campus and workouts for a few weeks now. And um, Marcus Bagley, he's been here for quite a while, lo longer than Josh Christopher has been. I'm not sure about uh 100 of their roster at this point well we'll be sure to to give you guys updates as we get them obviously you can keep it locked on the site at sundevilsource.com and our vip forum on the devil sanctuary but chris that's going to wrap up this edition of the sun devil source report podcast for our site publisher chris cartman once again i'm your host mason kern saying thank you for tuning in